Hello, welcome to the next episode of Eldritch Girl. And I've got Lyndall Clitster with me today to do the author interview. Uh, Lyndall, hi. Hi, it's, <laughs> it's really great to be here. I was just saying this is my first time on a podcast, so it's very exciting. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone? My name is Lyndall Clipstone. I write young adult um, gothic fantasy and my debut is Lake Sedge, which is the first in a duology and it will be out this year in October. It's coming out in America with um, Henry Holt, which is an imprint of Macmillan in UK with Titan and in Australia with Pan Macmillan. Lovely. Congratulations. Thank really you. Exciting. And you've got an extract from it that you're allowed to read. Yes. So this is from the fourth chapter in the book, and it's one of the new scenes that I added when I started working with my editor. She suggested that it needed kind of a a scene that felt a little bit like the wolf attack scene in Beauty and the Beast where the um, monster character does something to endear himself to the main character that like gives her a reason to stay with him and it ended up being like one of the funnest scenes to write in and so this is actually like a little bit from the aftermath of that so because I felt like the wolf attack scene was a little bit spoilery so uh the context is that she and her younger brother have been taken away by the monster of Lake Sedge um and they're ostensibly on the way to like his estate where apparently he murdered his entire family in like the lake behind his house um so they stop overnight to stay in like a kind of uh like a wayside cottage um and then when everybody goes to sleep she and her brother sneak out and try to run away but they get into trouble in the woods which is kind of like the wolf attack scene in Beauty and the Beast but with like a bit of a weird magical twist so um yeah and then he manages to like so Rowan the monster manages to save them and they decide to go back with him so this is just a little bit from the end of that scene where they sort of speak to each other before they go back into the cottage to stay with him for the rest of the night okay okay (laughs) wordlessly we go back through the forest the monster ahead Arian and me close behind Florence meets his pathway with the lantern. Her eyes widen at the sight of the monster with his bloodied face and bandages on his arm and hand. What happened? She reaches out, but he pushes her away. Never mind that. There's a blighted grove. He points to indicate the direction, then takes her lantern, giving her the torch in its place. Go back and burn the trees. You'll need to watch the fire so it doesn't catch the whole forest. Florence hesitates, her hands still stretched towards him. Are you sure you're all right? He glares at her. Yes. She turns with a sigh and vanishes into the trees. We walk the rest of the way in silence. When we reach the tree line, the monster motions for Arian to go on ahead and pulls me aside. He puts his gloved hands around the tops of my arms and leans close. My gaze goes from his dark eyes to his bloodied mouth and I'm filled with a strange hot feeling that isn't quite fear. He slides his hands down my arms and holds my wrists loosely. He brushes his thumb against where my sleeve hides the bruises. Are you truly sorry I took you from that cottage? His eyes slower and he goes on quietly. I'm not going to hurt you. The rest of it echoes unspoken, made clear by the touch of his fingers on my wrist. I won't hurt you, not like that. And what about Arian? What do you have planned for him? He gives me a guarded look. That's none of your concern. 
I don't care if you hurt me. My teeth clenched tight at the thought of it, but I don't pull away. After all I faced from mother to keep Arian safe, I know I could bear it if the monster was cruel to me. I could. Just leave him alone. You've heard enough about Lake Sedge Estate to know that I can't promise you safety. He lets go of me and walks back into the wayside cottage without turning to see if Arian and I will follow. He doesn't need to. He knows that we have nowhere else to go. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a rich extract. I really like that. There's such a lot going on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can we start by talking about some of the influences that are visible in the extract? So, like, um, I had to look at the... um, annotations that you sent out in your newsletter about that one which is really interesting um so you've got and um you've talked about how the story itself is based on a sort of a gothic secret garden premise yeah yeah so the kind of original very original premise was kind of like what if I took the secret garden and turned it into a gothic romance um yeah. So I think it's it's definitely <laughs> kept kind of the heart of that. Um, I grew up reading like this very beautiful illustrated version of the secret garden that my neighbor gave to me. And um, so we lived on the top of a hill in um, the country in a, like near the Adelaide Hills um, in South Australia. And uh, we had a kind of wealthy neighbor who lived down at the bottom of the hill that we lived on the top of. And she would often travel quite a lot and we would go down to feed like her pets while she was away so um I have really like fond memories of going to her beautiful like big garden and she had this very inky dark like not a lake um like a big dam of water next to her house that was black and a beautiful old um bluestone house so I think a lot of that has kind of stuck in my mind as like what Lake Sedge kind of turned into a little bit but she was actually the one who gave me the secret garden book. She used to give me lots of books as like Christmas presents and things like that. So I definitely, I grew up reading this like illustrated version of it. And then also watching like the nineties movie. I'm not sure if you ever saw it, but it's got yeah. like this beautiful aesthetic and there's just like some of the scenes have always just stayed really vivid to me, like where she's going through the house and looking into all of the locked up rooms. And then like the scenes where she finds Colin in the middle of the night by hearing like his cries and like, he thinks she's a ghost. And I don't know, there was just something about it that kind of made me feel like it was such a romantic kind of setting. And I really wanted to try transposing like a young adult kind of fantasy romance into that kind of, you know, like setting and aesthetic and feeling of like this beautiful, like wild environment and kind of isolated, big, sentient feeling house and things like that. So, yeah. I really love that. And I think um, I think you said that you um, you named Florence, the character Florence after Florence Welsh from uh, Florence and the Machine. Yeah. <laughs> so originally um, Florence was named Meadow um, and there was like a second character called Clover and my editor's like, I can't tell them apart, um, which was kind of worrying for me because like they were like Florence is like 40 and Clover's like 16 and I'm just like, wow, I'm really not doing too good at writing like these side characters. Um, and she suggested that if I changed their names to be a little bit different because like the botanical names were kind of making them a bit blending in with each other. So 
um I thought Florence would be kind of a nice name because like her music I'm like a big fan of her music and it's definitely like inspired a lot of um my work as well especially I guess like the Between Two Lungs sort of album um and I don't know just her whole sort of thing like I really like resonate a lot with her whole like creative body of work I guess I saw her live a couple of years ago now and she's just like this beautiful ethereal creature she wears like these big like white sort of flowing dresses on stage and she does this like amazing sort of like Kate Bush style um interpretive dancing and it's just like (laughs) she's just so magical um so I thought it was kind of a nice way to kind of like pay homage to like all of the ways that I'd been kind of inspired by her that's lovely yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and um I think so the last the last line of that extract uh, I've got there's nowhere else to go that's um that's a Nabokov reference isn't it yeah so I put that in the annotations um I don't know I feel kind of a bit weird being all like oh I was so inspired by Nabokov running like a young adult novel because I'm sort of like please like don't take it the wrong way but um like I um I read a lot of his work when I was a postgrad at university like Lolita was one of the books that I sort of looked at quite in depth for my thesis and I was always just really entranced with his writing style and the way that he weaves so many like intertextual references into his work so I have like this very well-worn copy of the annotated Lolita which has all of the like little um, literary references and like lines in other languages and things like that, that he's kind of woven in throughout the book. Um, And I just loved like the complexity of it and how multi-layered it felt, like how he had all of these like pop culture and literary and all of these sort of references woven in. And I think it was something that I kind of endeavored to do in my work a little bit. So like there's definitely like references to like, song lyrics and other books and different things all kind of woven in like some of them probably more obvious than others but that sort of line like even though it's kind of funny because it's such a nod to Nabokov but it's definitely not the same sentiment of like you know like I the that actual line in Lolita is so tragic like it just that's one of the most heartbreaking moments of the book to me where they like it's like he's told her that her mother's dead and she's crying in the other room and then like she comes into him and he's like we made it up very tenderly because she had nowhere else to go and it's just so heartbreaking and horrible and like just this perfectly crystallized moment of how monstrous and horrible he is and how he's just trapped her but that's definitely not the sentiment that I was going for between Rowan and Letta like they definitely don't have that relationship at all but there was just something about the poignancy of that line of like feeling so kind of like powerless and bereft that I really wanted to capture at that moment. Yeah, I mean, that's a really key element of the Gothic anyway, is kind of like the isolated protagonist and the entrapment and that sense of um, uh, not quite fatalism, but like that, you know, that sense that you are uh, kind of, either you have to face something or um, you're stuck in a particular situation or yeah like there's always like this very intense feeling of claustrophobia 
that I really, that's something that I've always really enjoyed. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing to say enjoyed about the Gothic, but I think I really like how the horror of the Gothic is so close to you. Like it's, you know, the things that are terrifying are familiar and the environment that you're in is like a closed in sort of familiar one, you know, like, I mean, in, in Lake Sedge, she's in the house, which is like a very sort of well-used Gothic sort of setting, but, you know, like a creepy house where you're kind of isolated and enclosed. Um, I don't know. There's just something about that whole, like, you're kind of trapped in this tiny space with like the world closing in on you and all you've got to get out of it is like your own wits. I don't know. Like there's something about like seeing what a character does when put in that situation that's really interesting as a reader and as a writer as well yeah um how does that map on to because I don't know very much about the Australian gothic and like that sort of tradition and I'm wondering how that maps on to or how you've been influenced by that as um as a tradition or as a mode um you know, I've, I've been thinking about how to talk about Australian Gothic since you raised it in like our emails. And I think it's such a, it's definitely a very complex thing to discuss and maybe not even one that I'm particularly equipped to go into because being like a, a white person in a colonized country, like I think a lot of the Australian Gothic probably comes typically from the feeling of like, European people feeling like outsiders in this very frightening and overwhelmingly foreign and very physically distant from home kind of place. Right. Um, And like, I quite like, I find that quite resonant. Like I'm a really big fan of like Australian impressionist painting and I feel like that especially really captures that kind of aesthetic because they've got all of these paintings of you know like the Australian bush but they're done in this very like soft light kind of you know soft colored the way that you'd paint like a European city with European light but they're painting like you know like the Australian bush there's just something about that that really like this kind of like trying to capture this world through like a lens that's very different I don't know if I'm explaining that right. Um, I think like, I mean, this is in Australia. I think of it maybe more of like Southern Hemisphere Gothic, but Jane Campion's film The Piano really captures that very well. Like it's a very different type of Gothic from like a typical haunted house kind of story, but the way that they're, you know, like they're in the bush and the ground is like just this quagmire of mud that you can't even walk across and they're totally isolated from everywhere and like this tiny hut and it's pouring with rain and like the first scene. And so that kind of feeling of being like, you know, like a transplant into like a very unfamiliar environment that becomes claustrophobic because it's so isolated. But then at the same time, it's sort of hard to talk about that without acknowledging the fact that like, you know, this land that was like a source of like claustrophobia and like a foreign experience for people was actually colonized and stolen from the like the first nations people who lived here and so that it does make me feel kind of like I'm not quite sure how to to approach that because like there's definitely like stories to be told that aren't my stories to tell and a whole other kind of I would I don't know like 
like there's probably like kind of two sorts of Australian Gothic, you know, like there's the Australian Gothic written by like European sort of people who are here coming at it from that point of view and then like the literature and stories to be told from like Indigenous authors and storytellers. So, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of like a very messy, like I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so is that why? I, so it says like such, um, would you say that's set in almost like an alternative European setting or um so I kind of wanted to Australia (laughs) I think it's so in in my kind of head canon it's like a southern hemisphere world um very much based on like where I grew up so um like where I grew up is sort of just outside the Adelaide Hills in South Australia and the climate there is kind of like fairly temperate like it's sort of like a bit cooler than the rest of everywhere else and so it's comparatively like a lot more lush there's like more sort of European style like there's a lot of pine forest plantations around um and again like my neighbor's garden that I grew up like she had quite a lot of like European kind of plants as well so I think I was always very entranced with like the European gardens like um and the blackberry like plants that grew like so they were like a weed but I just found them so like entrancing like we had like these really big black gray brambles that used to grow um in like the area near my house and I just I kind of wanted to capture the feeling of what the environment is like here where it's like this real mix of like European like so it's like European architecture European kind of landscaping a lot of like introduced European plant species but in this environment that's very arid and rugged and yeah so I think it wasn't so much that I wanted to write like a setting that felt European I wanted to try and but I didn't want to write something that felt like typically Australian either I kind of it was this kind of like in between sort of space I guess yeah so that's really that's really interesting I'm excited to read it um, and I'm I'm thinking about like the the idea of the whole sort of um, that monster boyfriend kind of um, that kind of monster romance um, element of it as well in this kind of really lush setting and you've got so many really interesting elements. Um, so why do you think um, that sort of gothic horror monster is such a um, a romantic figure? Like what kind of draws you to write about that sort of romantic dynamic? It is definitely a popular one, isn't it? Like everybody loves like a really good like Byronic hero, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think everybody's probably got their own like thing that draws them to like the monster love interest. Like so it's kind of hard to make like a general statement about like this is why it's appealing for everyone. I personally have just always, always been drawn to like the monster in a like a romantic kind of way. I remember being like a little kid and watching the Disney Beauty and the Beast and being terribly disappointed when he turned back into the prince because yes. I thought the prince was really ugly. I was like, but the Beast <laughs> is so cute. It's like, oh, that's such a disappointment. Like, what? He should have stayed <laughs> as the Beast and she could have stayed with him. Like, and like as like you know, like a five year old, I didn't kind of get like what that was. It was just. I I just remember being very disappointed that he didn't stay a beast and one of the like extremely formative 
pieces of media that I watched as like a young person was the Labyrinth film with David Bowie as the Goblin King and I don't know I mean like who doesn't love David Bowie but there was just something about like I so identified with like I mean watching it now as an adult it's so funny because like Sarah she's so petulant and like so angry (laughs) about being asked by her parents to like babysit her brother but like that kind of like petty anger is so like I I've I think I was very drawn to that as like a young person especially like it's very believable um and there was just I don't know I was just like oh I just you know like the idea of this like powerful like monstrous creature who would sort of offer you everything because he loved you so much like I just I found it so like I was drawn to it so much and I remember being like again like so disappointed that she went home even though like narratively it makes a lot more sense that she didn't stay with him but like you know you could just stay like it's fine I think that's definitely like a lot of fan fiction where like she goes back when she's older and things like that so clearly people have like there's other people who feel the same I think a lot of people Um, felt the same yeah (laughs) so there was like that and then when I was older at university one of the texts that I studied um so I did like an English Bachelor of Arts and I did a lot of courses that were like focused on like Gothic fiction. Like so some were like, I guess, traditional kind of Gothic and then like some of them were modern Gothic. And for one of them, we did like a Silence of the Lambs. Oh, I love that book. And there was just something about like Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter that just drew me in so much and I mean, it's like a canon monster romance too, because if you read like the book Hannibal, they actually do end up together in the end, which is kind of fun. So it's funny now that there's like the Hannibal TV show and there's this whole other like generation of people who are shipping him and Will. And I'm just like, no, no, like it's meant to be him and Starling. This is weird. (laughs) But there was just something for everything. That's true. I I really enjoyed the TV show. It was really cool. And I really loved like Gillian Anderson's character in it as well. Like, that's oh, sort yeah. Of weird. Yeah. It was very interesting. Um, but there was just something about like the bit where she's like, I know he won't come after me because like he'd like, he'd think it would be rude to like to eat me or something. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, there's so much power in being the one that the monster won't hurt. Yeah, I think that's yeah. just something something about that. I don't know. Like, I think it's it's kind of tricky because obviously, like in real life, the monsters are actually monstrous. But I think in fiction, you've got the scope to have this sort of like a monster who's like safe or like palatable or can represent things in a way that makes it all right. I guess like I know there's been like a lot of different kind of discourses about like writing villainous characters I don't know like maybe you know like if you start like doom scrolling and fall into like some like thread on Twitter where people are arguing about Raylo or something and it's just like no that's like the hour (laughs) of my life that I'll never get back because she can't love him he's a bad guy and it's just like it's not real and he's also really cute but you know there's a difference between like falling in love with like a real war criminal and falling in love with like Kylo Ren who's like a dude in Star Wars but right yeah so yeah. I do but I do feel like I need to make that distinction clear because it's tricky when I'm talking about you know like oh the girl who falls in love with the monster I'm it's like my fictional monster that I've built who's actually like you know good 
not like a real monster who's actually like in real life and is bad. So I don't know. I think it's just something about like this creating like a character where there's sort of this power in being like you're facing something that's like terrifying and that's feared and has the capacity to do like great harm but to you there's something about you specifically that makes you special to them and perhaps even like more powerful than them and you're safe with them so I don't know I think I wanted to play with that a little bit and I think I kind of doubly played with it because I with Lake Sedge there's Rowan so he's like the monster character in the excerpt that I read um and he kind of became like I guess like the beast who stays a beast kind of character but yeah. with the Lord Under as well who's like the Lord of the Dead that Letter, the main character can communicate with that was very much a playing around with a like a kind of Jareth sort of figure where you know like powerful and everything except somehow brought to their knees by this like human mortal girl for whatever reason and I don't know it was just a lot of fun to play around with it and to like balance the power dynamics between all of them and to try and make it all kind of you know like the giving letter who realistically has like very little power trying to sort of give her this like story of being strong and empowered and working her way through her relationships with these two kind of terrifying monstrous characters so I don't know if that answered the question or not (laughs) that's that's great (laughs) and it's interesting because I think she's she's getting also a lot of her strength from battling um against her mother as well I think that's part of the backstory that you get from the sense that you get from the extract is that she's yeah so I'm trying to think about how to like without giving too much away so the (laughs) very basic premise is that she has a younger brother called Arian who is in possession of like magic that's not quite the same magic that like everyone else uses so there's something about his magic that seems to be like tainted or dark or wrong and there um so they were like orphaned and so the woman who took them in who they refer to as their mother um she's kind of afraid of Arian and trying to sort of fix him um okay um and so like it's like she's kind of let us been in this situation of like she wants to keep her brother safe but it's always this kind of is it better to stay in like the unsafe situation where you kind of know the parameters or go out into like the wider world where there's like the potential for like more unknown risks and so that's kind of the point she's at at the start of the book where she's putting herself in harm's way to protect her brother from the like mother's like abuse which is like in the name of like trying to help him Mm. um and justifying it to herself where she's like at least here like I know the risks and I know how to protect him because like I can step between them and take the hurt and um versus like leaving and going into like a wider world where there's so many unknown sort of threats Mm, that's so awful yeah so it's a lot about like sibling kind of bonding and then like this kind of idea of like maybe like 
she's sort of feels like she's done the right thing by doing this but perhaps like it sort of gets to the point where like she has to face the fact that like she needs to maybe let him face some risk in order to grow and um, perhaps it's like actually being kind of hurtful for him to watch her sort of hurt to protect him if that makes sense yeah yeah without giving too much away about the story I don't know like yeah it's sort of it's such a tightly woven very kind of like very small like scale story that it's really hard to talk about the specifics without (laughs) spoiling it I guess (laughs) but yeah that's where they're out at the start anyway yeah it sounds like there's so much in it like there's a lot of uh very deeply gothic themes so it's quite a dark it's quite like a dark a darker kind of book um but yeah I think so yeah I mean I don't know I've always just really like loved dark aesthetic gothic kind of things like I grew up you know loving like dark fairy tales and labyrinth and like that Adams family movie from the 90s just being very I know (laughs) just being very drawn to all of these sort of very dark aesthetics like an interview with the vampire like I read like so much Anne Rice I loved like the movie interview with the vampire when it came out and I think I just like it was just this big homage to like the goth teenage girl that I was like so it's kind of dark but in like I think in like an aesthetically like lush kind of romantic kind of fun way like I call it kind of like an art school goth book so it's like yeah (laughs) you know it's kind of like it is dark um but there's like moments for humor like Letta the main character is quite witty she's got like this very dry kind of gallows humor where she diffuses stuff by joking a lot and she's got like a very like I don't know it was that was a very fun challenge as a writer to try and infuse humor into like quite a serious book because there's so many times where like maybe a joke and my editor's like this is not landing she should be afraid of him why is she teasing him here and I'm like I don't know I just wanted her to be funny and (laughs) um (laughs) but that balance of like I don't know I I really love how authors like Lee Bardugo do it like her books are so funny um and quite dark and I really loved like especially in like the original Grisha trilogy like how Alina is like so like quippy a lot of the time and it's just I don't know I loved it and I wanted to try and see if I could infuse some of that into my book because it's like it's really nice to read a book where it's like dark and also funny yeah Um, definitely I think you can't have dark books without humor if you're you know uh if you're trying to write something that's um, readable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even, I'm trying to think, like, even, even something like Game of Thrones, which is like this completely grim and dark, like it has these like real moments of humour with like some of the characters, like with like kind of witty lines yes, and things like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Otherwise you just end up with, you know, 500 pages of despair <laughs> and like, all power to you if you enjoy that but <laughs> but like I, think- I don't know I think I quite enjoy reading like a very serious like grim book too but I think for me maybe writing it I wanted it I wanted the chance to be a little bit silly and yeah funny as well maybe I think for me as well if it's if it's funnier I think some of the it some of the tragedy lands better I don't know like I I really like comedies that have genuine 
traumatic parts to them yeah like a real kind of Shakespearean kind of thing (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and I think like I mean I guess like it's sort of a letter it kind of functions as like a a, and like a diffusing technique too so like her brother will be trying to sort of pin her down about you know like something and she'll just be making jokes and he's just like this is not like this is not funny like stop you know stop making silly stop being silly about like whatever but it's like a kind of survival technique I guess like this kind of way of like laughing at stuff like like a gallows humor I guess but it's yeah I think especially for young adult it's kind of fun to keep it a bit like not entirely serious yeah um so what's the age range that you're sort of aiming this book for so it's like upper YA um so like I guess 14 to 18 I think is what my publisher has categorized as so I think it's probably like one of those books where it's kind of like a crossover like you know like older young adult or like adults I mean I still love reading young adults so it's kind of hard to sort of say but um you know like I think it would sort of work like if you like Naomi Novik's Uprooted or those sort of things um like or the bear and the nightingale like it might appeal to sort of adult readers to enjoy that but it's definitely got like a very young adult voice and kind of first like stepping out into the world kind of storyline because that's one of the things that I really love writing about a lot like this kind of being on the cusp of everything starting I guess it's really fun that's lovely yeah 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 and the second one forest fall that's coming out in 2022 so next year is that right yeah so I at the moment I think it's meant to be like the end of 2022 um fall American fall so we'll see with publishing it's kind of like I've just learned not to like really get too attached to anything until it's like definitely set in stone but at the moment like I'm about to start should start working on like edits for that within the next month or so so yeah it's getting kind of getting a bit more real I'm really looking forward to it like it was I didn't write it as a duology originally it was originally a standalone and I sold a two-book deal and nobody kind of asked me what the second book was going to be like along (laughs) the way (laughs) so um I remember I had like a an email exchange with my editor fairly early on and I said to her did you want to see an outline of my other book and she's like oh well depending on how a lake search does we might want to turn it into a series and so I was like oh okay well I'm gonna have to have some time to think about how to do that so I was like yeah cool like let's let's turn it into a series I've got an idea of how I could stretch it out because I think when I was on submission I had um like this sort of okay if anyone asks me when I'm on sub if like if I could make it into a series what would I say and so I had this very very rough plan of how I could take like basically the last chapter of the book and stretch it out into like a whole new book but that was like going from like okay so here's like a one-line premise how do I turn that into a whole a whole novel and then like the pandemic happened and so I was trying to draft this book in the middle of like everything being completely chaotic and having my publication date moved ahead because of a pandemic so originally like such as meant to debut in February this year so it ended up being shifted mm. ahead which worked out really well for me because it meant that I had like a lot more time to draft Forest Fall so 
it was kind of a silver lining in the end, <laughs> but it was a very weirdly stressful time to be trying to write a new book. Yeah. But I really love, I love how it turned out. And I think it's got a lot of the same sort of themes that are in Lake Sedge, but it's like a different kind of like a different newness to it as well. So yeah, it feels really weird having like this whole second book finished before the first one even comes out. I'm really looking forward to like, I guess this time next year when I get to talk about it a bit more. <laughs> yes, I'm excited, but I have to I have to read the first one first. <laughs> yeah, it's still so far away. Like it's sort of everything in publishing is so slow. It's so funny where you're like, oh, my book comes out in like, what is it, like eight months. And, you know, that sounds like so far away, but I'm starting to feel like, oh, no, it's already getting so close. But yeah. Fun. Do you have any ideas about what you'll do after you've um, written those two? Um, so I've been like in between everything else working on a new book, which is a standalone, another sort of gothic kind of fantasy. Um, so we'll see where that goes. I haven't really shown that to anyone yet. I think my agent's seen like little tiny bits of it. So I'm hoping like, yeah, I think it, I think it will be. I, I think in the future, I wouldn't mind sort of. So when I wrote Lake Sedge, there wasn't really much of a crossover kind of adult fantasy, like, kind of market. It was all, like, sort of all or nothing, really. It was, like, YA or, like, very, very adult. But then in between, like, I mean, there was, like, Naomi Novik is kind of, and Catherine Arden are probably the two, like, that were, like, the exception. But then, like, with, like, Lee Bardugo's Ninth House and um, Tamsin Muir's Gideon the Ninth, like those sort of crossover kind of adult science fiction fantasy books that's made me sort of feel like oh I think I'd really like to push myself to try and write something that was adult but we'll see because I also really do love writing YA kind of voice and YA situations so yeah yeah so I think the way that my new book's going it's, it's definitely shaping up to be another kind of YA kind of just in terms of like the character's journey, like it's very much a like setting off from safety into the great unknown for the first time and finding yourself and, you know, like that kind of thing. So, yeah, so fingers crossed that it will be able to find a home at a publisher and will turn into a real book someday. Yay. Yes. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been lovely to talk to you. So um, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. Um, and for reading the extract for us as well <laughs> yeah thank you for having me yeah it's been really lovely um that's all we've got time for thank you for listening um on thursday we've got the next installment of the crows to listen to um so stay tuned don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you on thursday bye now <laughs>